Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecka. Welcome. I'm so glad you can join us on Mission Evolution, where we bring the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. This hour, we'll consider evolving technology. Is it a blessing or a curse? Technological advances are exploding on every front. As a result, we're living lives that were only conceived of in science fiction just 15 years ago. There is no denying miraculous things are now possible due to the ongoing tech advancements. But is there a shadow side? Will all the changes be brought about by intelligent machines be positive ones, or are we unwittingly orchestrating our demise? With us this hour to delve into both the pros and cons of the AI explosion is Steve Hoffman, the chairman and CEO of Founders Space, a global innovation hub for entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors. Hoffman is the author of several award-winning books, including Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and his latest, The Five Forces. In addition, Hoffman served on the board of governors of the New Media Council, was a founder and chairman of the Producers Guild Silicon Valley chapter, and was a founding member of the Academy of Television Interactive Media Group. His website, founderspace.com. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Mission Evolution. Gwilda, it's fantastic to be here. We should have a good time today. This is a very interesting topic, to say the least. So, Steve, how did you get interested? How did you first get interested in technological advancements and the impact they have? Well, I've been interested in technological advancements my entire life. So, my father was a rocket scientist, and I'm not joking. He was a rocket scientist at MIT. And when I was young, he said, son, computers are going to change everything. And that set me on my course. And throughout my life, I've always been experimenting at the crossroads of culture, technology, and society. Like what, what benefits does this rapid technological advancement that we're experiencing right now have on society and what are the perils that we have to watch out for well that's some interesting topics because we're we're like a heck bound train we're doing all these advancements and i don't know how closely we've looked at uh what are going to be the shadow side of all that we have not so we are moving so fast right now and governments around the world they don't want to stifle innovation so the last thing they want to do is put the brakes on this because they want their economies to grow. They want to maintain a lead, a technological edge. So they're pushing and pushing and corporations are pushing, but we don't fully understand what this technology can do. And we can go into that today. One of the things that I've noticed, of course, because I'm of an age and I do fairly well considering, but uh, you know, about half the population, when you consider the baby boomers and everything else, is kind of getting left behind. Um, they struggle a lot with everything going, um, you know, online and this and that. Have you seen that? And do you think that's part of the impact? That is definitely part of the impact. So we're seeing a massive 
accumulation of wealth among a very small minority of people around the world. And those tend to be the people who control the technology, who control the corporations that uh, are growing like crazy because they're using new technologies to reshape our economies. So take Elon Musk, for example, in the amount of, you know, $54 billion, like controlled by one person, can step mm. up and he can just buy Twitter or other companies at will. This is an enormous amount of power in very few hands. And then these people will be deciding our future for the most part. Well, what kills me is I, I'm sure we all have had the battle between human and the algorithms. You're trying to get, you know, just something as simple as a social media to not block you out because their algorithms have mistakenly decided that you're doing something wrong. I wonder how much that impacts us on every level at this point because it's so invasive in our lives. Well, we haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> We're just at the very beginning of what these algorithms can do. So what I talk about in my book and I go deep on is the, how this technology is penetrating everything we do. So if you look at our machines today, whether it's the phone in your pocket, whether it's your smart robo vacuum, whether it's tools you're using at work, platforms you're using at work or to, for, to socialize on, all of these are getting smarter and not by a small margin. They're getting they will be getting exponentially smarter. So a lot of the decision-making that we make today and take for granted, we are going to be delegating to our algorithms. And why will we do this? Well, because they'll be so effective. So just think of a few things. Like if you go to watch Netflix, it is constantly monitoring everything you watch, how long you watch it, all the, and gathering this massive amount of data, not just on you, but on all the users like you. And then they are making predictions about what you should be watching next. So instead of getting it from other sources, from friends or other people, we're having an algorithm basically feed us what that algorithm thinks we should watch next. And a lot of times we just accept that as the default. And if you look and that's that's a scary thing, isn't it? Because we aren't making our own decisions. And it's been proven, you know, psychologically proven that what we're fed via the television or the Internet has huge impact on our belief systems, our reality um, or our decision making. And you're telling absolutely. me that a machine is feeding me what I see next. That's pretty frightening. Well, you know, when it comes to what movie I'm going to watch, not such a big deal. But when it comes to what articles I'm reading, what videos I'm consuming, we've seen the impact. Misinformation can spread very rapidly over the internet. And these algorithms, like what Facebook have, actually reward misinformation because the more sensational and unbelievable the headline on the article or the video, the more often it's shared. So they are actually, the algorithms are actually making certain problems in our society, especially the spread of misinformation, worse not better. And then uh, we have to look at other things because, you know, we're going to be using algorithms at our work to do our job better. So algorithms are going to be making the decision, you know, should I uh, fire this employee? Well, in the future, we'll have an algorithm analyzing everything that employee does and making recommendations, whether a person should be promoted, whether they should be fired. We will have algorithms helping us decide who should we date? Because nobody wants to go on a bunch of bad dates if an algorithm can look at all the data and find you a much better match, a much more likely outcome. Well, people will defer to the algorithm instead of randomly shooting. But what, what you're telling me here, um, it takes me back to the fact that unless I've missed something along the way, 
machines and algorithms don't have a heart. They don't have gut level instinct. And yet they're making decisions that 50% of that decision should be based on heart, compassion, spirituality, and, uh, you know, a gut level instincts, our, our intuition. And that's totally absent. What it's impact is that going to have? Completely absent. What, what they have instead is algorithms are incredible pattern matching machines. So they can, Facebook did a study where Facebook had their algorithm actually look at what its users did. And then they went and asked the users, which articles will you read in the future? Which videos will you watch? And people would say, oh, I'd read that article and I'd watch that video. And then they asked the algorithm the same question. Well, who do you think was right most of the time? The individuals saying what they would do in the future or the algorithm predicting what they would do? Well, the algorithm, the algorithm. The yeah. algorithm was right because the algorithm looked at not what they thought they would do, what they said they would do, but what they actually did. So well, they're dealing with probability as well, and they can do that so rapidly, yeah, right? We can't do that in our brains. So we mm -hmm. and we can't really analyze ourselves the way a, an algorithm can analyze us. So what I'm saying is that algorithms will be predicting our own actions, our own decision making better than we can. And that's going on right now today. So you can imagine 10 years from now when these algorithms are much more sophisticated, they will be able to predict all these things about our society, our lives, who we are, what we want, much better than any of us can. Well, there's this interesting concept, um, and I made a little note because I want to, to bring it up with you, is the possibility of connecting our brains directly to the internet. Is that a real possibility? How far off is it? And what's the impact going to be? It's a huge possibility. In, in fact, it's an inevitability. It will happen. Elon <laughs> Musk is working on this uh, with his Neuralink. There are you know, dozens of other startups out there progressing on this technology. Big corporations like Google are experimenting with it. I will tell you, uh, it's just a matter of time before a, a large percentage of our population will actually be hooking their brains up directly to the internet. That what just does that makes mean? me cringe. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean? Well, first of all, it means the cell phone that this little computer we carry around will seem archaic. Who wants to tap, 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 tap away on a phone when you could just think and send messages across the internet, when you can just think and pull down information from the cloud? That is where we're headed. It won't be iOS or Android. It will be a brain operating system, a, which will control the company that controls that brain operating system will control the interface between us, our minds, and all the information out there and every other living brain out there. Start to imagine what that means for society. Well, what comes to mind, Steve, is absolute power corrupts absolutely. It could, yes. There are huge potential for abuse in this. There's also, and I want to point out the bright side. So technology, as we've seen, has brought incredible benefits to our lives. So if we hook our brains up to the internet, which we will, in fact, in laboratories today, people already have brain chips implanted. So they already have, and these are people with severe medical conditions, like they're completely paralyzed. But with a brain chip, they can actually control a robotic arm and feed themselves. They can drive themselves around in a wheelchair. They can control, they can actually send messages. They've done this in the lab directly from a person's brain across the internet and receive messages. Huge, huge advancement. If they can do that now with a brain chip, it's only a matter of time before we have a non-invasive 
where we don't have to drill a hole in our head, devices that consumers will be able to wear that allows them to communicate. And we even have those devices now. They're just very crude. We're going to see this um, improving exponentially over the coming years. So well, what, the, the upside ahead. of having something you could wear versus something that's implanted is can't you take it off and turn it off? Yes. Anybody can do that. Can't you go out and leave your cell phone at home? You can do that any day you want. Do you leave your cell phone at home? No, because it's so darn useful. Like, you you know, most people, very few people can leave home without their cell phone today. I mean, it, we are just bound to those. So you imagine, yes, anybody can take off these brain computer interfaces, but will they? And will the, and what will the, what will the majority of people do? Well, first of all, the benefits will be enormous. Like we will be able to imagine this. You can seamlessly pull down information in, into your mind when it's needed. It be, it's like the internet becomes an extension of your consciousness, an extension like oh, the cloud computing power. You can compute uh, anything out there by just delegating it to the cloud and instantly coming back to your own memories. You could start to store in the cloud because we all know our memories are faulty. And where this gets really amazing is that when we're connected to the internet, everything that comes into our brain, including vision, what we see, audio, what we hear, touch, what we feel, all of this is just signals, just electronic signals that are coming in to our mind and our mind is processing them. Well, those signals could be coming in from out on the internet. So I could literally connect to your brain in the future and start to exchange ideas with you. I could start to potentially, and we haven't proven this yet, but it, it's theoretically possible. I could potentially start to feel what you're feeling. I could start to see what you're seeing. We could actually potentially exchange and share memories. How amazing would that be? I mean, that's like nothing we've ever experienced before. And so what, what, what brings to my mind there, Steve, is it looks like an addiction in the, in the making. Okay. It, that once you have access to that instantaneous response, then you're not going to want to do without it. And then what happens to our reality if we're being fed our reality from a machine? Well, yes, it's, it's a, it could be defined as an addiction in the making. It could be defined as some transhumanists do as a transformation in the making. Depends whether you want a positive or negative spin on this. And really, like all things in life, there it's it's a duality. There, there are two opposite forces. There, there are benefits and drawbacks that are combined. It, they're almost inextricable from one another. So we're heading down this path in the future where we will be merging with our machines. Literally, the metaverse, which is out there right now, right? But in a very crude form, like the metaverse we see today, will actually become a reality when we have these brain computer interfaces, because it won't be like we're wearing some bulky headset or we're putting on glasses, augmented reality glasses. Literally, we'll be able to feed into our brain and synthesize with the real world around us digital information. So we could overlay, like when you're entering a space, it'll be a combination of the physical and the digital, and they will be almost indistinguishable from one another. Because you can imagine if you can actually input signals that aren't just visual, but, but audio, uh, sensations on your hand, these digital objects could have texture, feeling, you could manipulate them just like you would a physical object, but it's all in your head. 
So we will but be living in this blended reality. reality. Yes, go ahead. Isn't our reality already all in our head? It is. That's the thing that most people don't realize. What's in our head is not what's real. It's what we create. Magicians know this because they can actually get you to see things you don't see. And the reason they're doing that is because when you look, we think our, our eyes are like video recordings, but they're actually not. We're actually taking what we think reality is and creating those images in our head. So like a magician could hold up a ball and make it disappear because we believe it disappeared, even though it didn't. They And these card tricks and everything else. We, there's actually, just to give you one example, it's really fascinating. I do a lot of studying of the brain. Uh, there's a blank spot in our eye, like, you know, right where our iris is, there's a, the pupil is, there's a, a blank spot. So there's a hole in our vision, but we can't see that. You know why? Because our brain fills it in. They fill, they, our brain automatically fills in what it supposes to be there. So you can see the power of our minds. And when you couple this with computers that are generating information, it, it's, it, it will transform how we perceive the world. Will it also standardize how we perceive the world? Because right now, I think a lot of in, interpersonal difficulty is a result of misunderstanding. I interpret it one way, you interpret it another. Mine's based on my triggers from my past. Yours is based on your triggers from the past. And oftentimes, we just don't even communicate as a result. Well, Will this also have the capacity to standardize reality enough that we can be on the same page? It depends what you mean by standardized. But what I will tell you is that imagine a scenario where instead of asking your partner, whoever you it could be your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, uh, Im imagine asking this person, how do you feel today? So you have to guess how they feel. You have to intuit how they feel. But with brain computer interfaces, you could potentially get those signals from their brain and actually feel what they feel. You're level of understanding of that other person and their level of understanding of you would be like, it would be transformational and, and potentially in a very positive way. So you're but talking the about- But at the same time, you're totally violating privacy, aren't you? Right. So there's, there's two sides to this. So one is it could bring the world together, like misunderstandings, both on a personal relationship, but on a social, if all, all, all of humanity is being plugged into this giant network, we could start to see ourselves not as individual people, not as individual nations or tribes, but as part of one collective consciousness that where all of our actions are, are actually joined. And that could create a new type of harmony, almost a nirvana on earth. However, at the same, the flip side of that coin is that um, this nirvana, this heaven on earth where we're all connected, working together could also be hell on earth. Because well, we're going to have to look, we're going to have to look at heaven and hell on earth on the other side of a quick commercial break. Steve and I will return very shortly. So don't go away. This is Mission Evolution, www.missionevolution.org. Do 
you enjoy paranormal, sci-fi romance, yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines, then you won't want to miss Kahir O'Donnell's latest exciting release to taste you again. Alien Lord Kane McKean knew the moment that his destined mate was born. He watched from afar, waiting for her to grow from child to woman. However, before she was old enough, she was stolen from her home world by flesh pirates. Kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber, a ten-year-old girl in a woman's body. He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or KahiraO'Donnell.com. Hello again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this hour, discussing the impact of technology on our future is Steve Hoffman. His website, founderspace.com. Steve, we were just getting into the heaven and the hell, and who knows where who knows where we're going with all of this. Probably a little bit of both, and, and I have to tell you that um, the movie, the old movie, The Matrix, certainly is coming to mind right about now. Um, but there's another aspect that I'd really like to get into while we still have time, and that is the messing with nature, okay? Getting in there and finding out about DNA and starting to create our own life forms. I understand some of that is already going on as well. It is already going on. So we, in addition to these brain-computer interfaces, you know, merging with this uh, electronics in our bodies, connected to our bodies, we are also decoding, we've actually decoded the source code for life on this planet. We now understand the human genome, and we are using that knowledge to actually edit uh, genes of uh, human genes with gene therapies that are coming out, our, every plant and animal species on earth, we can now reprogram them and make them into essentially whatever we want. We can, we can literally, in the laboratory today, create new species of plants and animals that never existed. So that's almost a godlike power that us humans have. We've taken evolution into our own hands. We're seeing enormous benefits, like in Florida, they are now breeding with uh, by actually editing the genes uh, heat-resistant cattle. Now, why would you want heat-resistant cattle? Well, climate change is getting hotter. They're doing the same for crops. We're creating new types of crops where we can actually combine like the flavor of bananas and berries, raspberries, and put them together in a new fruit that never existed before. So, but Steve, you know, yes, there's the there's the adage is not nice to fool Mother Nature. Everything out there was cr created, you know, create is, is synergistic and forms a balance. And like we've seen with some of the GMOs, it's not because we've changed it and they're more hardy or this or that. It's also changed it in such a way that it may not be as nutritious for us. It may not be as good for us. It may not be good for us at all. How are we going to monitor that? It's very difficult. So, like I said, technology is moving at such a rapid pace. And these things to test out whether a new strain of crop, gene edited crop, or gene modified crop is 
the impact it has on our lives, like on our health, but also down generations, like, you know, three generations from now, what would be the impact on those, uh, the, uh, the health of the, the population? We don't know. We literally don't know. So there are benefits. Again, there are also risks that we're taking. And this is where, this is where we need to have discussions. Like around the brain computer interfaces, like we were talking earlier when we said a hell, people could hack it and literally steal your identity, implant memories, take memories, you know, you know, a paranoid's fantasy, you know, could, could, could literally become true. You know, these people wear tinfoil on their head. I mean, these with gene editing already in China, uh, one of the scientists actually gene edited human, human embryos. It, supposedly to prevent against them contracting AIDS, but nobody knows the ramifications of those gene edits, whether these, uh, these, they're now born, these girls are born, but will they develop cancers down their genetic line? Will it have any impact? We don't know the answers to these questions, yet we are experimenting right now on, on our entire populations. It's, it's terrifying, really, quite frankly, because, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic and I'm a bit of a, you know, nature knows best kind of person. I can see the benefits of, of you know, somebody that was born, lost oxygen at birth and can't communicate at all, suddenly having access to communications and all of that. I mean, the, the, the benefits are clear. But when we don't know what's going to happen to our descendants as a result of our getting our fingers in the pot, I think it's very terrifying. And then you're telling me that um, all of our decisions are being made by an algorithm anyway. So why have a conversation, right? We're not making the decisions. It's, it, we're entering a very new world. And the dynamics are changing so fast that, you know, the average person, let alone our politicians, who are just worried about getting reelected, you know, have very a little understanding of, of the potential abuses of this technology. And even if the technology is used responsibly, we don't always know where it's going to take us. So with gene editing, I mean, right now we've seen a lot of benefits. Let's face it. Um, these new uh, developing drugs to fight off COVID has been, you know, mRNA, you know, uh, that has proved very successful. However, um, we are using this technology across the board. We're treating, the, the, the benefits are real. Like we are able now, we are on the verge of being able to eliminate cancer through gene therapies. Like that will happen. There will come a day where we won't have cancer. There will come a day where a lot of these conditions, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, we will actually be able to understand at such a deep level and we will be able to eliminate them. Huge amounts of suffering changes. You know, we're gene editing mosquitoes now so that they can't, continue to breed and carry malaria. So millions of people die from malaria. We could save those lives. Those are real benefits of this technology. So we don't want to just turn off the spigot, right? It's not that simple. People have to understand that all of these technologies, when used responsibly, can have enormous positive impacts on our society. But when have we ever used them responsibly? I have to pay money every month to not get a bunch of solicitation calls that drive me nuts on my cell phone, on my technology. When have we actually been responsible? That is the problem. There, you know, like all things in the world, there are people there 
who, you know, who genuinely will use these technologies responsibly. We can look uh, our lifespans. We have extended our lifespans through technology. We've, we couldn't sustain the world's, the population we have today on this planet without modern farming techniques. It would just be impossible to do, right? So there are lots of benefits. Standards of livings have been rising around the world. We have, we have brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and that trend continues. So there are positive impacts. We don't want to, it's not black or white. That's the problem. If it were black or white, if it were all negative, then we could just say, don't do it. But it's not. So what we have to do is, and this is the challenge we face as a society, as a people, is figure out where will the worst abuses happen and how can we uh, balance these out with really smart planning, with uh, smart regulations, not overregulate, not underregulate, with social discussion on the responsible use of these technologies. So like the discussion we're having today, should we edit human embryos? Should we be able to gene edit? Should parents be allowed to pick? Right now, you can actually pick the eye color and hair color of your baby, not through gene editing, but just by picking the, the right eggs and, 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 and actually matching them up. They can do that now with in vitro fertilization. However, and that used to be considered an anathema, and today we accept it, right? But is that right? And when we go further, when certain groups of people with money can actually use the latest technology to make their children substantially smarter, you know, substantially healthier, you know, less risk of cancer, less risk of disease, potentially extend the lifespan of certain segments of our population. Should we be doing that? Is that something we want? And who should have access to that technology? Should it be the, you know, the, the Elon Musks and Bill Gates of the world who have unlimited pocketbooks? Or should it be the mass of the world? And what does it mean once we start editing our genes and actually start transforming the human homo sapiens, right? We could become an entirely new species, like in the future. And what, who, whose children are those species? What does that mean? It's, it's, a, it's a dilemma for sure. Um, and it's a moral dilemma, really. Because again, I, I like to point out that if the algorithms are making our choices anyway, what does our input mean? Right. And that's the question is, what should we delegate to algorithms? We are facing, you know, right now there's the war in the Ukraine, right? A lot of the future wars will be fought by algorithms, not humans. Oh. So right now, this is primarily still a human war. But in the future, think about it. Two fighter planes are coming at each other, right? One is controlled by a human. Another is controlled by an AI. Who's going to win? The AI is going to be much better at predicting what will happen and making instantaneous decisions, right, about, about how to shoot down the other plane. Drones, right? Already we have humans flying drones, but algorithms will be flying all our future drones. Algorithms will be running our tanks, firing our missiles. Algorithms will be doing everything in the future. The country with the smartest algorithms will win. Now, so far, so I, I want to say, so far, we've had humans intervene. Right. So humans have to make the final decision when a drone strikes. Right. But when two AI powered uh, robots are going against each other, whether it's drones or tanks or missiles or whatever, there's no time for a human to intervene. There's no time for a person to be, make that decision. They will have to decide so quickly that we will have to take off the safety precautions. And that's when it gets scary. Well, you um, you mentioned that uh, we might be breeding more intelligent people, but aren't we actually 
also running the risk of breeding mentally lazy people because it's being done for them. Everything is being done for them. Yeah. Well, right now we, you know, there's two ways to view technology. Technology can enhance our current intelligence and make us capable of, of accomplishing and doing more in this world. But intelligence, but artificial intelligence can also replace us. So there will become a point. Absolutely. It, it's just a matter of time in the future. It won't happen tomorrow. It's still a ways out. But where our machines can do literally everything we do better than we do it ourselves. <laughs> they can do any job, whether it's being a lawyer and, you know, they have algorithms now that can write lock, they can write legal agreements, whether it's being a doctor, they have robotic surgery. You know, Da Vinci is one of these robotic surgeons. Now humans are still controlling them, but soon they can be entirely automated by really, really smart algorithms, whether it's uh, any job, you know, in restaurants. Now they're having robots serve people at a certain point. When uh, will we not be needed. And what does that mean for the human race? Like when we don't have to do anything, what, yeah, like you said, are we going to become incredibly lazy? What is our purpose in life? Those questions we have to think about. And hopefully before the decision's already been made, you know, I mean, I see young kids that are so dependent on their, their phones that they never look at reality. And you're telling me that this is just on a heck bound train that is moving forward so quickly that we really can't mitigate it. It's already if you, happening. If you think our phones are so compelling, which they are, right? Like, you know, you look at teenagers today and even myself, and I will spend a lot of time staring at that tiny screen, interacting with it. In it, let's let's say, let's be frank. It is a reality. It's just not the, the reality that we're used to in the physical world, but it's a whole nother reality, a, a virtual environment that we're interacting with, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. Those things are real to us. As real, as much as we invest ourselves in them, they become real. What happens when instead of this tiny little screen, it's all of a sudden the world around us? Like literally everything we look and touch is a digital representation or is, is layered digital and physical blended together. That will be so much more compelling. Will we ever want to live in the world as we know it today, like the real physical world, or will we become lost in this very tantalizing world? And I want you to think about one question. What happens when our relationships in this world become not just cerebral, but actually become physical. Like if you, if, if, if there's a perfect avatar lover, right. Who is designed to please you in every way that your, your, your psyche could imagine. And this lover, you actually feel that the sensations come into you. When you touch, it feels real. When you listen to them, they sound real, like a real human, yet they are an algorithm. How what with young people and even, you know, any age person, will they be so tempted by this reality that they don't want to leave it, that it becomes more important to them than their real relationships with other people? And there are a lot of very smart uh, scientists and professors and thinkers out there who are worried that we will become completely detached from each other and we'll be spending all our time with these artificial representations of humans that are designed just to please us instead of dealing with actual human beings, you know, like your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, partner, who are messy, who cause you grief, who don't do what you want them to do. When an algorithm can simulate like that perfect relationship, that non-real relationship, what does that mean for society? And what's terrifying to me is we're already seeing it. 
Okay. We are. We're already seeing it. So we don't have to ask if people are going to be more enamored with machines than they are with each other. It's already happening. It's, so it, and where does that look, take us? It yeah, takes us away what, from spirituality. It takes us away from emotionality. It takes us away from intuition. It takes us away from love. And it takes us away from ourselves. How can we understand ourselves better when we don't have to actually deal with other messy human beings, with imperfection, with struggle, when we can step into a fantasy world and literally uh, just ex it, it, it adapts to us, like what our needs are? It's like a drug, right? It will be, like you said earlier, like an addiction, like you will just, it's so stimulating it's so compelling that you will just go back to that world because just like you would escape through a drug and and if you combine that with all these other forces out there like machines being able to do our jobs and stuff will we wind up in this sort of metaverse that simulates heaven but it actually isn't really living we aren't really interacting with other people we are in our own isolated bubbles which takes us back to the matrix, doesn't it? It does. So talk about a prophetic show, right? Yes, exactly. So all of these things that were science fiction now are actually happening in real life. We're seeing the metaverse evolve. We're seeing gene editing evolve, you know, like with Gattaca and, and science fiction like that. We're seeing our space technology evolving. And what I do in the book in, in the book is really just raise these questions. Like are, you know, what questions should we be asking what types of technologies should we be supporting and where should we really be standing up and saying we're crossing the line there we do not want technology messing in that area of our lives so steve before we're out of time i always have to ask what is your mission so my mission in life is i am fascinated by by the world right by life by thinking deeply about the world we're in about the human condition and what i want to do is help stimulate discussion and deep thinking not shallow thinking oh i want that next shiny object but really deep thinking about the role technology plays in our lives in the future of the human race so steve again we're just about out of time but What's your vision for the future of man and woman and technology? Well, like all things that we've seen from the nuclear bomb to the computer through everything we've, you know, invented, you know, the, the gunpowder, fire, they can be put to very good uses, very productive uses, and very negative uses. And usually my vision for the future is that it won't be black or white. It won't be totally negative and totally horrible and it won't be totally utopian. It's gonna be somewhere in between. But what we wanna make sure is that this technology is exponentially more powerful than what came before. Like decisions we make now will have much bigger ramifications on the future than, than, than technological decisions we've made in the past. So I wanna make sure that we guide society, that all of us together can come to a collective understanding of what's good for us by really thinking this through and take us in a more positive direction. It'll never be totally positive. There are always going to be risks and downside, but we can steer the ship. This ship isn't out of our control. We have created this world. We create the technology. We are the drivers. We are still in control. We need to use that. Beautiful vision and, and a very accurate one because it is never one or the other. It's always a combination. And I think coming out of polarization, we'll become more enlightened. 
We will. And, yeah. and honestly, it's, we we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Technology. That's a fact. It's going to progress. It's yeah. here. We are going to keep discovering new things. We can't say become Luddites and say just shut it all down. Like, <laughs> well, Steve, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Gwilda. Our guest this hour has been Steve Hoffman, author of The Five Forces, a book revealing how technology is unleashing forces that will forever alter our lives. His website, founderspace.com. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to visit past archived episodes, visit missionevolution.org. Please be sure to join us right here next time as this mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to an evolving world.